everybody. Welcome to the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Bishop Todd Hunter. That's right. I'm the host. I'm usually on the other side of the microphone. I've been on, I don't know how many podcasts, but I've never been the host. But I think I can handle it because back in the day when I was a church planner, I used to actually be a radio DJ. Yep, you heard that right. So I'm going to put these old skills to use here. We're going to begin with a five-part series on Advent. And in this series, we will hear how Advent is not just a churchly tradition, but gives to us a story and practices through which we can do evangelism, discipleship, mission, and soul care. Our first guest up is my friend Esau Macaulay. There's a lot of reasons to talk to Esau. He's a fascinating guy, but today I drag him into being precisely who he is professionally, and that is a New Testament theologian. And I ask Esau to help us see how the Advent story can become our story. I can't wait for you to hear this. Here we go. Hey, Esau Macaulay, it's great to see you on my screen and one of our first guests on the newly configured C4SO podcast. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I want to talk to you today, Esau, precisely as a New Testament theologian. I mean, you're so many things to so many people. You're, first of all, a husband, a dad. You're a professor at Wheaton. You're the award-winning author of Reading While Black. And I got to say, in my family, you know what's pride of place for Esau Macaulay and oh, my no, family? What, is it? what am I known for in the Hunter it clan? It is Josie Johnson's hair and the Holy Spirit. That is literally beside <laughs> our fireplace. And my wife, Debbie, my daughter, Carol, that's like, there's, they love that book. Yeah, I know. It's like my daughter, my daughter, the funny thing is my daughter was coming, she was at church the other day and she goes up to um, one of the, one of the members and she says, do you, you know my dad? They said, yeah, we know your dad. I said, he wrote a book. It's like, yeah, Reading My Black. She goes, no, 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 not that one. Josie Johnson, yeah. not me. Yeah. The real book. <laughs> yeah, the real book. So, so yeah. in my daughter Claire's eyes, you know, Reading My Black was the prequel <laughs> to Josie yes. Johnson. Oh, that's my, other, my other three children are, well, not my oldest son. He's 14. He's too cool for this. But the yeah. um, six-year-old and the eight-year-old are demanding uh, a book about them. So it's, uh-huh. it's a source of some drama. So I might have to get back to writing kids' books pretty soon. Yeah. So you saw lots of people, of course, as I said, know about you, but they may not know you that much. So I think a way of getting into this, um, again, thinking of you today precisely in your role as a New Testament theologian, uh, what made you want to study theology? What made you think that that was a like a useful thing for the church? Yeah, I can. I remember precisely when I decided to go to seminary. I don't I can't really say about how I ended up getting a Ph.D. That was a that was a, a later event. But my senior year in college, they had elected me as discipleship coordinator for the Baptist Mm. Student Union. And the discipleship coordinator taught a Bible study. And so I went and found a a NIVAC, the New International Version Application um, Uh. Commentary on Romans. And it was written by Doug Moo, which is interesting because Doug Moo, his his office is down the the hall now. And so I would read Doug Moo's Romans commentary, take, you know, scribble some notes, and then I would teach the Bible study. I never forget yeah. I was teaching the Bible study. My future wife was in the Bible study. So if, you want, if you're looking for a spouse, okay. teach the Bible. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, I was sitting in the room, and I was teaching a Bible study, and I saw people writing down notes about what I had said. And I uh-huh. was like, I could be completely wrong. I spent 20 minutes on this <laughs> yes. Bible study. So yes. like, yes. how are you writing down what I'm saying? And I have this real sense of responsibility that if, mm. you know, if you can speak and you're comfortable in front of crowds 
and you can string words together, people might listen to what you say. And I had a real conviction, I guess I want to say it's from the Holy Spirit, to make sure that I taught people the truth. Now, everybody, all of us are, are, are going to make theological error. That's impossible. Sure. And I said, if people are going to write down what I say, it is extremely important that I give them as accurate um, a, a explanation of the scriptures as possible. So I said, I wanted to go to seminary so that I could learn Greek and Hebrew and translate the text for myself, understand the best study methods, so that then I could explain it to the congregations and the yeah. Bible studies that I was going to lead one day. And so really, I went to seminary because I felt like if you have a speaking gift, you have a responsibility mm. to um, tell people the truth. And That's that led to good. seminary. I went to seminary. People yeah. um, thought that I had some intellectual gifts, and they encouraged me to, 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 to study more. And eventually that led to um, the PhD in St. Andrews. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know we were going to go here. So we'll call this bonus section. Esau, yeah, the bonus section. I, I'm, I'm just thinking of that gut instinct you had about truth. And I don't know exactly how old you are, but I know yeah. you're about the age where in the late nineties, you know, all the stuff about epistemology and deconstructionism yeah. was coming into the church yeah. at a time when even if people weren't experts in epistemology, I mean, very few people are, yeah. You know, humanity seemed to be going through this thing where everybody was doubting truth. Yes. That there was such a thing or that we could apprehend it. Uh, yeah. So that's, I find that fascinating that around that same time you were craving truth. Yeah. So the, actually, I remember um, the, this is the first time they started talking about postmodernism as the boogeyman who's going to destroy everything. Yeah. So that yes. was actually my senior year in, um, in uh, college, and I won't, I won't, I won't name names, but believe it or not, I went to hear uh, a, a well-known evangelical thought leader um, drone on about the dangers of postmodernism, those kinds uh -huh. of things. And so, I felt like it was important for me, and for 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 a variety of reasons we can get to later, have become convicted about the truth and the trustworthiness of Scripture, yeah. and that hadn't come to me easy. I'd already had my um, kind of spiritual um, struggling season. And I think uh, it's becoming more common now, but I had that in college when there wasn't a name okay. for it. And yeah. I'd come out the other side and said, no, no, no. These, the scriptures are God's word to us for our good. This, you know, the yes. good news, the gospel, the person of Jesus, the, the holiness of life are, is in the text. Um, the God who I meet in the text is the friend, not an enemy. And so I thought the best thing that I could do is learn how to understand it and interpret it well. Yeah. And that's what led me to seminary. Yeah, this is all well, free. We'll be talking about something else. Totally. This is all free. If if we if we were sophisticated, we could put this behind a paywall somewhere, but we'll yeah. just we'll just give it to them for and free. If, if you want to know something else, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and, I, and maybe this is the reason why we never stay on top subject, because I feel like I'm talking to my friend. <laughs> but I remember um all of the stuff now that we talk about about the kind of a lot of the public leaders who've kind of fallen by the wayside before yeah. character issues and because mm. of abusive behavior. All yeah. of these people like um, Mark Driscoll were like at the height of their power when I'm coming through seminary, 2002, oh, right. 2005. Yeah. This is all like I walked through all of this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Robbie Zacharias, all of these things. And I remember I remember as a, as a, as a young black man just being completely turned off by kind of the aggressive mode of um, Christianity that was there. And I had a strong conviction that there has to be a better way to hold our convictions. 
there has to be a, a orthodoxy that doesn't crush the spirits of people. Right. And right. I've been really convicted the last like few weeks I've been praying about. It. I've been avoiding tweeting too many hot takes on God's internet, but I've been wanting to say, I believe there are non-toxic expressions of orthodoxy. Yeah. And I feel like yeah, if you yeah. want to say like, you know, what, what, what I discovered when I was in seminary is how do I communicate the essential truths of scripture in a way that people can understand so they see those truths as good news instead yeah. of those truths crushing the spirits of people. So I would say yeah. the seminary taught me, or at least gave me the tools to begin and think through non, non-toxic expressions of orthodoxy, if I can put it that way. Yeah, that's one of the things I uh, admire about you, Esau, is that you're not just a head. You're not just, as James uh, K. Smith said, a, a brain on a stick, but you also care a lot about the ethical, moral, relational side of Christianity, and it comes out. We're grateful for it. Well, okay, everybody, that was seven minutes of free stuff from uh, Esau, <laughs> and now we'll we'll get into uh, the real topic of our podcast. So uh, the first series of, uh, that I'm doing in this podcast is called A Storied Season, and this season, of course, we're doing Advent. So Esau, yeah. I, w- I was looking through the lectionary not long ago and noticed that the Advent readings this year uh, it's not a year where it focuses mostly on first coming or mostly on second coming. It's one of those years. It's a blend. Yeah. And it's, so it tells the story of the coming of Jesus from John the Baptist all the way to some eschatological readings. Yeah. So I was thinking, uh, you know, you're a Christian before you're a professor, but you now are a professor. Yeah. What are the practical kind of discipleship implications of that story that our lectionary is telling us this year? Like, how do we live into that story Especially, yeah. I was just thinking about the news cycle today when Jesus seems to be off the scene of our troubled times. You know, like yeah. he's gone, but he's not back. Like, how do we live yeah. into that story? Well, the, the first one, and it's it, um, I, when I saw the email with the questions on it, I was like, oh, I'm going to try not to talk 30 minutes about this, but I'm going to be <laughs> brief because I have an icon. I have an icon of John the Baptist that I ah. keep in my home. And I think that John the Baptist might be the the saint that we need in this time. And what I mean by this is if we take a step back and like look at John the Baptist's ministry, his ministry was, I am not the Messiah. Yeah. And I think we live in an age where everybody is looking for the most famous Christian who they know, who agrees with them, who can actualize their version of Christianity in the world. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, we look to these heroes and we expect these heroes to fix things, but because these heroes can't fix things, they're not Jesus, they always they always fall. So we kind of live in this age of these heroes, these people who put a lot of trust in, who then fail us. Or the, the, the actual clergy people or the leaders, they begin to think that they actually are the Messiah, that they can fix the problems plaguing the church. Yeah. And what I appreciate about John is that John knew deeply in his soul that it was not him. And that it was his job to not solve the problems of the world, but to faithfully point to Jesus. And so one of the things that I say to my students all of the time is, you don't got to be the Messiah. That job is literally taken. Mm -hmm. And it's your job to, to... to point to Jesus. That's what the, at least for me, sometimes I get in that same, you know, we all think that we can fix the problems of the world. And whenever I get off, off track, I look at the icon and I say, okay, John the Baptist's ministry was to point people to the person who can actually solve their problems. And so I think that John the Baptist reminds us that it's, it's, it's not our job. 
Now, the interesting thing about that, though, is that although John pointed to Jesus, that's the first part, John in his ministry points to Jesus, he also engaged in the work that God gave him. So he does actually do things. He doesn't just say there's Jesus. He actually engages people of his day. Mm -hmm. And in particular, John the Baptist's ministry as depicted across um, the, the Gospels are ones in which John says, the, the beliefs about God that you have are manifested in how you treat the poor. Yeah. Right. So John says, you know, what should we do? You know, you who have two cloaks, share one with your, with your needy. But then it's not just that John points to personal piety. If you had mm-hmm. two jackets, give one jacket to your cousin. Right. That's fine. Yeah. That's right. personal piety. He says, live lives with personal integrity. But John also says to um, the to the um, soldiers, don't extort people. Like, don't use yeah. your position as soldiers to extort the poor. And in those days, the the soldiers could kind of use their influence to kind of make sure that, that you receive bribes to keep everything up, yeah. um, on the up and up. And so you see John in his own ministry, both pointing to Jesus. He understood that the greater hope of the world was in Jesus and the work that Jesus is going to do. But at the same time, he just the lived experiences of people. And so I think that what John gives me confidence to do is to be able to say, what does God have me to say to the world? And how do I engage in that work that God has given me to say to the world? But how do I at the same time acknowledge that that work is insufficient? Mm -hmm. There's someone greater than me. And I think um, one of the things that the church could recover from John is that, yes, the church has his witness, right? We have the actual concrete work we have to do. Yeah. But there's also the reality that the, that the church only finds itself most clearly when it's pointing people to Jesus, who then comes and, and does the things he does when he comes. So that's at least like when you ask me about John the yes. Baptist yeah. and the role that he plays. I can say more, but I don't want to talk the whole time. No, that's great. Thank you. What I hear you saying, Esau, um, just being aware that most of our audience is um, Christian leaders, pastors of churches, a lot of preachers. Um, so if I were to take what, if I were to try to take what you're saying into the pulpit, it, you know, it might go something like this, that Israel had years and years, you know, thousands of years of waiting for its Messiah. And within that were the covenants, you know, with Abraham, Moses, and others that, as you said, yeah. Israel was supposed to be doing something, not just wait. Yeah. And now we live on the other side of ascension and have been waiting for the second coming for two years or 2000 years. So <laughs> what I hear you saying is, like if we're trying to teach and preach this stuff that we can um, both extol waiting and pointing to something, but while doing that, we're also active ourselves as ambassadors of the kingdom in the world. But I I, I would say um, not waiting. I would say embracing your inadequacy. Mm -hmm. So what John in particular does um, is that he knows that he is not the hope of the world. Yeah, but his so he so the first part is John goes I can't fix it. So the church, just like Israel, is in some sense like recognizes its own inadequacy. Yeah, right. We need a king to come. In so much as messianic expectation was existing in the time, we 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 need a a a king who's going to be God's chosen agent of of, of liberation, and as the church we recognize that even though we have the spirit of God, we, we, we aren't the hope. Yeah. 
Yes. Now, that that inadequacy, though, does not lead to inaction. It means that we can do what God has called us to do and recognize that there's more that we need God to intervene upon. So in other words, we just can't create utopia. Right. Utopia, we can't create the kingdom. The kingdom has to be inaugurated by Jesus. And so the great thing about that is that allows you to do your actual job. Right. If you don't have to be God, you can be God's servant. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you don't have to be the Messiah, yeah. you can point to the Messiah. And so yeah. I think that John's John's hinge point. Um, and the other thing that I would say that John represents or these covenants represent is they're like what Jesus does when he comes. And this is I mean, maybe this is too esoteric, but it when Jesus comes um, in the aftermath of John's ministry, it, it runs backwards and forwards through history. What I mean is there is the open question, right? Until Jesus comes or the Messiah comes, what to make of Israel's long suffering. So you talk about the covenants, yeah. the promises, and these people who, there are people who lived and died and who never saw it. Like Jesus says, the blessed are those of you who see now, the prophets right. long to see it. Mm-hmm. And so there's an entire generation of people who died in the hope of the things that they didn't see. So when Jesus comes, what he does is not only vindicate everything that goes forward, he vindicates everything that goes backwards. So the people right. who died yeah. in faith without receiving the promises were no fools. Yeah. And so when we began to read those stories of the redemptive history climaxing in the coming of Jesus, it makes all the difference in the world that it actually climaxes in the coming of Jesus. Otherwise, right. the stories don't have any resolution. The yeah. reason that matters for us then is because we might have a vision for the church that we want to see, that we think it's from God, that we want to see actualized in our lifetime. Yeah. That all we can do is, is, is till our portion of the garden and trusting that through God's providence, um, our labor is, is not in vain. And, and what I want to say, the reason that challenges us is we look at the church in the present moment and we see corruption. Yeah. And we see brokenness and we see disappointment and we say, how can the church ever be anything other than it is? Well, imagine what Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist would have thought when they had their entire lives and the lives of their grandparents and the lives of their great grandparents Mm -hmm. had only known oppression and colonization. Yeah. So these stories challenge our myopic um, perception of what God is doing in the world as judged by the progress we make in our lifetime. Yeah. Hi, I'm David Taylor, C4SO Scholar-in-Residence for Arts, Media, and Culture. And I'm Phaedra Taylor, a visual artist who happens to be married to David. And we are excited to share The Light Has Come, a collection of illustrated prayer cards that we have created for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. This collection of 25 cards includes themes that we're familiar with, like joy and peace, or Mary and Joseph but also less familiar ones like sorrow and refugees, the mundane and the fantastical. And our hope with these prayer cards is that individuals like yourself, families, small groups will experience the nativity narratives in a fresh way in hopes of discovering a story that truly heals our broken world. If you'd like to learn more or purchase the cards, visit store.rabbitroom.com. And we hope you have a wonderful Advent season with those that you love. All right, here we go on another free excursus. I didn't know we would go on. So I hear you channeling a little bit, I think, or maybe it's in my own ears, but I hear you channeling a little bit of your teacher, Tom Wright. I don't I don't remember why, and I'm not 100% sure I'm right about this, but yeah. I think 
the first book I read of his was Climax of the Covenant. But I don't know why yeah. I read that first, but I think it was. Yeah. And certainly Tom was the first one who ever alerted me to the notion that like, uh, I'm sure you've heard him say this at the yeah. Eucharistic table, both the past and the future are coming together. Yeah. Yes. Um, so again, say more a bit about why that's so important is like a lived reality, like a discipleship reality. Well, you mean the Eucharist or the past and the present yeah. coming together both? Yeah, the past and the present coming together in this Jesus thing. Yeah, because what, what, what I'm saying is, there's a real question that I think any honest Christian may ask is, is what I am doing making a difference in the world when I can't mm. see it? Yeah. And it feels like we're battling this, this, this huge problem that we can't defeat. And we're tempted to say, well, I'm just going to give up and, and kind of check out of the enterprise altogether mm-hmm. because I can't see a future in which God does anything. And when I'm talking about Jesus coming together in the past and the present meeting, yeah. is that the incarnation and the second person of the Trinity vindicates the entirety of, of the history of people of faith who died not having received the promises. In other words, it shows that there were no fools. Yeah, right? So when, 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 for example, John the Baptist dies, he's beheaded by a wicked ruler. Right. In the middle of Jesus's ministry. He never sees the end. He never sees the resurrection. But because Christ is risen, John the Baptist's ministry takes on a totally different tenor. Yes. Otherwise, he's just pointed towards a fool. So that means that in Christ, our past is vindicated and our hope is assured. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing to do as a Christian is that like there are certain things that I think about the church that I don't think I am now 42. That's not super old. But I know that I'm not going to see them in my lifetime. I yeah. wish that in our church right now, and I'm speaking about the church Catholic, yeah. that we had we could combine orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that we could love scripture and love justice, and people wouldn't presume that because I care we care about the poor or abuse victims or or climate change, whatever it is, that we've mm-hmm. kind of somehow lost the plot. I wish that that suspicion wasn't there. Yeah. And it could be that I die as a Christian with people having that suspicion. But I trust that if I'm actually reading the scripture well, God's going to do something with the ministry that he's given me. And the the evidence that I have for that is that that's happened before. Forgive me. I'm going to use like, um, imagine you're Athanasius, right? Mm -hmm. You're Athanasius and the entire world is abandoned Trinitarian um, orthodoxy. And he he has the nickname Athanasius Contramundi, Athanasius against the world. He's like... (laughs) He looks around and there's Aryans everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's he sitting in the exile every 15 minutes, but he maintains the faith. Yeah. And now we look back and we see um, his life totally differently because God, the record of what he did matters. Augustine, he's there as the, you know, the, the, the fall of, um, of the empire is happening. And he's wondering, like, has all of the things that I have built as, as, as a Christian um, coming to an end? And, and what do we have? We have the city of God. Yeah. And so the ending of one's story, when it's directed towards God, can be picked up by God and used in its own time. They talk about Martin Luther King was depressed when he died. Yeah. Because yeah. Of the, the fact that he saw the stubborn, the stubborn persistence of racism. But I feel like that I look back on his life and say that his life wasn't in vain. And so how, what is it that makes all of those lives, all of those lives valuable? Yeah. Is that they're wrapped up in the grand narrative of what Christ is doing. 
And I think if we can do that, it allows us to to continue on when there is no path that we can see um, towards faithfulness. And this is like super like low level, but it's like you're at the you're at the Red Sea. There's a sea behind yeah. you, and there is an army yeah. coming in front yeah. of you. And it right. feels like the church is right there, some, and and and, and God will make a way. Is probably the best way to talk about it. Oh man, Esau, that's so great. I mean, it. I I think it's radically practical, you know, given what's in our news feeds every day, and yes. how easy it would be to quit in despair. Yeah. All right, well, let's pivot here a bit. Uh, this year in the cycle at, at Advent, we also read the Magnificat. Yes, and you can help me probably articulate this better, but that little period of history feels to me sort of liminal. Like, you know, it's, it's like not completely Jewish the way we might think of it. It's becoming the way we might now think of Christianity. So you're in this tight little liminal spot. Yeah. Like what's going on in the Magnificat? I mean, what's being prophesied there, what's being promised, what's being hoped for. I mean, it sometimes makes me think like of all the things Mary could have said, why do we suppose she said these particular things? Yeah, I mean, part of it is the Magnificat is modeled in part on um, Hannah's song. The Hannah sings when um, yes. she finally um, is able to conceive and give birth to a son. Mm-hmm. And so the interesting thing about it is, as you imagine um, young Mary making her way from Nazareth over to see her, her um, relative Elizabeth, what would you do if you if this is you and there's there's a child growing inside of you? You probably reflect on what God has done in the past. I can imagine Mary mulling over, you know, a list, you know, Hannah's story or all of the miraculous stories of birth. And she it seems to be the case that she comes to the conclusion that she learns something about who God is by the choice of her. And what you see in Mary's own song is, oh. And this is kind of a a real bit of self-awareness. God chooses the weak things to shame the wise. She sees the great inversion, right? The people that God chooses, the people that God chooses on the people the world expects. And she extrapolates from her own choice something about God's own character. And this is, once again, not to tie it into John the Baptist. And that's the great thing about Mary. She recognizes that in the world's eyes, she's insignificant. And it's precisely in her insignificance that God is glorified. But she also sees something about God's character in the choice of her as poor and needy, and that God's character throughout the Old Testament is to turn his attention towards the stepped on peoples of the world, that God himself can, is concerned about the needy. I talk about this now. If if Mary if Mary were to, were, to, were to tweet out the Magnificat, she'd be accused of being a critical race theorist. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, like, she's talking she'd about be the icon of woke. <laughs> you know, she'd be... And so, like, it's, what I'm saying is... Mary, Mary understands that if God has called her to bear the king, Mary has read the Psalms. And yeah. the king in the Psalms, places like Psalm 72, is the king who is just, right? The, the, the reason that people are rejoicing in the reign of the Davidic king is because the Davidic king exercises justice towards the, towards the oppressed. It's there. And yeah. so Mary is celebrating the choice of her on one hand and the choice of um, and the coming of the king on the other, because she knows the coming of the king means justice. It means other things besides justice. It means holiness and salvation and transformation. But for Mary, she's highlighting um, justice. And, and, and I would tell people, probably one of my favorite scenes they should make into a movie 
is the scene of pregnant, you know, young Mary meeting pregnant young, pregnant older Elizabeth oh, and the yeah. baby jumping inside of Elizabeth's yeah. belly. And then they're mm-hmm. singing a song. It's like pregnant women yeah. singing the musical. Yeah. I don't know why this isn't a cartoon somewhere. But yeah. <laughs> the idea that um, Mary walks in and in a sense, a woman, um, Elizabeth, is the first one to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Mm-hmm. When Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as Matt, or you can say beneath that, the, the baby in her womb, mm. not yet born. So who are the two people to first confess Jesus as Lord in this scene? The baby, John, who recognizes Jesus yeah. even then and who jumps in her womb. And yeah. the mother, who are both mm. proclaiming who um, Jesus is. And then Mary wraps that scene up for articulating in the Magnificat who Jesus is. And one of the hardest things to do, and I say this to my students all of the time, is to read the Bible and not be afraid of what it says. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the things that we're afraid of about some of the issues related to justice and, and, and moral formation, uh, that we're afraid of being accused of, of believing are things that Mary states plainly. Yeah. And so when people ask me, for example, where my theology of justice comes from, and they claim it comes from one place, I say it actually comes from Mary and Isaiah and the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have to learn to to allow these scriptures to inform our understanding of what Jesus himself came to do. And that is to establish a kingdom that includes moral transformation and repentance of sins, but also the advocacy for the people who are suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I hope everybody who has to preach in Advent gets to hear this first. You're giving, you're giving people some sermon fodder here. Thank you. Part of what we're open for. All right. Uh, so last question on, on the Advent story. Um, this year we, we read Matthew one, you know, where the angel uh, of the Lord tells Joseph uh, to name the baby Jesus, uh, yeah. quote, because uh, Jesus, the baby will save the people from their sins. Yeah. And as you know, because you and I talk about this a lot as friends, there's this big debate today and throughout most of the church yeah. uh, about what the gospel really is. Is yeah. the gospel something to be narrowly construed, like, you know, going to heaven when you die? Or is it more of a broad idea? So I don't think you would hear this very often on a podcast. I'm not sure I ever have where we're going to dive into a couple of lexical issues here. But yeah. You know, one of the main words for salvation, as you know, in the New Testament is sozo. And I feel like that points yeah. us in a certain direction. And then yeah. the Greek term for hamartia, you know, that obviously has Hebrew roots uh, for yeah. what sin is. So on the one hand, there's a life imagined. And then on another hand, a life that's out of alignment with that. So say something about this notion of uh, how our understandings of the gospel inform the way we think of discipleship. Yeah, I think that um, the first thing I might say, and forgive me, this might seem a little bit provocative, is that I think we asked the wrong question, because we we want to narrow and we want to narrow down the question to what the gospel is, and then yeah. focus on that. But I want to say something like Jesus called us to make disciples, mm-hmm. and for example, at the end of Mark, he says, "I want you to you know go therefore and make disciples, teaching them everything that I've taught you." Right. So Jesus doesn't actually say 
only explain to them the gospel. He says, makes disciples. So yes. the good news is, you know, that Jesus died for our sins and that if we trust in him, we will mm-hmm. be invited into his kingdom that he establishes justice and righteousness. That's fine. Like, we can talk about Jesus' yes. death for our sins and our repentance as a means of entering into his kingdom. That's fine. But Jesus says, if I taught it, you teach it. You teach it. That's yeah. Jesus' instruction. So in and other words, if I did it, I did it, you do it. Yeah. So we're not allowed mm-hmm. to limit the question of saying, well, what is the gospel? And then we have to download something into the gospel in order to convince people to do it. And so the question I ask is, did Jesus teach this? So did Jesus yeah. teach that we need to be forgiven of our sins? Yes, he did. Did Jesus teach us about the kingdom of God? Yes, he did. The kingdom is probably central in Jesus' own ministry. What's in the kingdom? What's depicted in the Sermon on the Mount? Right. And so we are not allowed as Christians to say, well, I know Jesus gave us all of this stuff. I'm going to edit out all of that stuff and just only talk about this part. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a difference between what I say to you in the in the proclamation of the good news to be into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, an expansion of that as you grow in life and faith. And so I feel like we, we, are, we are so caught up in asking the question of what is the content of the gospel? Yeah. Instead of asking the question, what do you need to know to be a disciple? And to be honest, I want to say something like, when Paul talks about his own preaching, forgive me to talk about Paul, but this is at least important yeah. to get to yeah. understand what happens. He goes, Paul says in Galatians, for example, that he gospels the son. Mm-hmm. He says in Galatians 1, like he gospels the son. So when he says, when I go and preach, I preach about Jesus. Well, what mm-hmm. does it mean to preach about Jesus? I'm assuming that he doesn't just say Jesus Christ is crucified because he has to understand, he has to explain what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Right? right, even the Messiah crucified contains within it a narrative. Because what does it mean yeah. to say that a king has been crucified who nonetheless reigns? So yes. even that statement there, yes. Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus the Messiah crucified, carries with it the entire narrative of the kingdom. Why did yeah. they crucify him? Because he preached the kingdom. What was the kingdom? How did he say you joined the kingdom? And so what I want to say is the life with God includes all the things that God has taught us to do. Yeah. And if we include all of the things that God has taught us to do, I don't have to prove to you that it's in the gospel. I have to prove to you that it's in the Bible. And in yeah. the Bible, <laughs> I don't understand how you can have like anything other than like kingdom, salvation, wholeness, peace. Let's not, I want to say, limit our congregations to um, a truncated understanding. Paul himself talks about this, right? He said, I fed you on milk. Right. And then I try to, to progress to solid food. So in other words, there's a growth in the, in the pedagogical experience of Christians. And the idea that we only have to ask what formula is the milk <laughs> instead of yeah. ever asking what the whole meal is, I think is a misunderstanding. Now, and I know we have to go, but could we then argue if we wanted to argue, what is the actual gospel? And we would begin to ask questions like, well, it seems like in the Gospels, the Gospel is the story of Jesus. The good news is who Jesus yeah. is. Mm-hmm. The God has established his reign in and through the person of his son, whose death for his sins reconciles us to God, and we can be entered into that kingdom by faith. And to be a part of that kingdom means to embrace God's shalom and to be agents of shalom in the world. That's the mm-hmm. Gospel. Yeah. Right? But even if you disagree with that, that definition of Gospel, you can't deny that it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, we're scripture people, then we got to do it. Yeah. So part of what I hear you saying, Esau, is these big pregnant words like shalom or Greek sozo for salvation or hamartia for sin, that these find their truest and best meaning in the narrative, not in our lexicons. 
or in yeah. our fights about them. In other words, yeah. like maybe I'm responding to the wrong question. People say, well, is this a part of the gospel? Yeah. And if it's not a part of the gospel, then I can push it to the side. Yes. And so if I want to say the, the scriptures talk about salvation and wholeness, and the scriptures talk about sin and forgiveness, and the scriptures talk about shalom, then mm-hmm. in my life as a disciple, I need to repent of my sins, embrace God's salvation, and participate in God's shalom. Yeah. And even if I don't have a system that ties all of those things together, I can begin to embody them as best as I can understand and grow mm-hmm. in that synthesis. Instead, what we tend to do is edit out the things and say, no, 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 we're just going to focus on the forgiveness of sins because that's what people most need to hear about. But yeah. what, what does discipleship look like other than opening up the whole counsel of God? And so I want to free people from doing is engaging in a triage um, kind of scenario as relates to biblical truths. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, Issa, we, all, we want to end with something sort of fun, uh, personal, okay. uh, yes. this Advent. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you have a favorite Advent moment or story or some Advent moment that was particularly meaning for you, meaningful? I'm going to make a plea to um, all of the, the pastors and leaders of the world. It ain't that hard. Just play O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Just do it. Right? <laughs> I've never heard a Christian anywhere saying, you know what I've heard too many times? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Yeah. We only get it. We only get it for like the four or five weeks in Advent. And it's like 15 <laughs> lines. Just run them through. Like do it processional, recessional. Like give me Come, 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 come Emmanuel. Come thou long expected Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> On, 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 the, on the banks of the Jordan, just, just hit those on repeat, right? So we got all year. So we got yeah. all year to sing God of Wonders. All right, give me <laughs> give yeah. me some some good old-fashioned Advent hymns. And and the other thing that I would probably I would probably suggest is um one of the things that the things that makes us if we have anything to offer to the church, like the the wider body of Christ. It is the richest of the Anglican tradition. So at yeah. some point, maybe explain to our congregations, like um, some of the Advent music, some of the rituals, just like, I think that one of the things that the Anglican tradition has is this rich um, history. So I guess I would say, um, come thou long expected Jesus. I'm sorry, o Come O Come Emmanuel is my favorite song and I cannot yeah. hear it. Um, <laughs> That's so great. And I don't believe in purgatory, but if you play Christmas music before Christmas, you might have to go to purgatory. <laughs> that's <laughs> uh, so great Esau thank you that's just kind of the fun moment we were hoping to end on yeah. well thanks man you're a beloved colleague in C4SO we love having you alright thank you so much for having me